Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. It is the 7th of October. We're going to talk about how we hear the headlines of the day, how we process the headlines of the day through the filter of the mind of Christ, which we have developed by being people who are in the Word, people who are abiding in Christ, people who are seeking to develop the mind of Christ in the matters of the day. And we're going to talk about how we walk that out into the world that God so loves and how we do so in ways that honor Jesus. So, You may have heard, like I have heard, uh, about a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, so uh, a state rep in Pennsylvania, who um, intends to uh, introduce legislation um, that would require men to get a vasectomy if they have fathered three children and or uh, by their 40th birthday, whichever comes first, and that would be codified into law as the definition of wrongful conception if you were to conceive a child as a man after your 40th birthday or a fourth child or subsequent children, uh, that there would be a $10,000 reward for anybody who reported to proper authorities, uh, those men who fathered a fourth or more children and uh, or had not had a vasectomy uh, by their 40th birthday, whichever comes first. So, you say to yourself, well, surely that's not true. And then you say, you, you come to find out, oh, no, he, there is a representative named Chris Rabb uh, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, and he does intend to introduce a, such a bill, um, inspired in part by a, a bill um, in Illinois by a representative named Kelly Cassidy. So... Um, in the, in the Illinois bill, there is an effort to enforce reproductive responsibility among men through a series of efforts. That one is called the Texas Act, and the X is small. Um, in, in Pennsylvania, um, the bill to be introduced is intended by the representative to be a parody, which means he intends it as a joke. The problem is no one is getting the joke, and it's not really a joke. I mean, I would say that even... Um, even on his own congressional website, which is, by the way, if you're if you want to if you want to get to the truth of a matter, go to the source. So don't just read or listen to what someone is saying about something. It's a little bit like relying on commentaries instead of actually reading the Bible. Okay, I am not interested in hearing you parrot what someone else has said about the Bible. Like, go read it for yourself. Um, you you are completely capable of doing that. So study the Bible for yourself. In the same way, I would say, um, if you hear or you read a headline and you say to yourself, that just can't be quite right, go to the source. Go as close to the source as you can. And so in this case, you go to the website of Representative Christopher Rabb, the 200th District, Philadelphia County, and you read what they've posted. 
It's posted by Representative Christopher Rabb. And and the headline is this. Rabb announces parody legislation enforcing reproductive responsibility among men to highlight gendered double standards regarding reproductive rights. So that is a mouthful. Um, that's not a very good headline, but that is the headline um, on Christopher Rabb's congressional webpage. Why am I sharing this with you? Um, because not everybody is getting the joke, for sure. Um, and efforts to parody things that are so serious um, often fall short. There are a lot of people who have passed this information along, and they've done so on social media, and it's now horribly confused. And so the joke only works if it's understood by thinking people in the context in which it was originally offered. And so I just think it's a lesson to us that joking around um, can go sideways pretty quickly if the context of the joke is lost. So one of my favorite people to joke around with uh, is Peter Kapsner, and he's up next. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Peter Kapsner, with whom I am going to have this conversation. My husband uh, is going to be 62 on Saturday, and Matthew <laughs> turns 16 uh, on October the 14th. So anybody out there doing the math? Do the math. Do the math, do the indeed. Math. Well, oh, when... and Matthew is the sixth of Jim's kids. So See, either way, on either, in <laughs> uh, yeah, by either standard, he is... Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. When you were going through the math of that, Carmen, we have five, we've been blessed with five children. Hallie and I have. And uh, and at the age of 45, we thought we were pregnant again. And we took turns waking up in the middle of the night just saying 63, which was mm-hmm. the math of how long it would be to, to raise the child. That's and, the math. And we, and we were troubled by that on some level. But then when we found out she actually wasn't pregnant, we were both. Oh, we were really disappointed by that deal. So so there you go. Well, I mean, you and I could probably make a pretty fun list of people in the Bible whose dads were over 40 or who were more than the third child. For sure. I mean, what number is Joseph in that lineup? Yeah, I know, like 11. I mean, and they, and they yeah. still so, rolled out with Benjamin after that. So there's, yeah, there's clearly, plenty, plenty cl- of clearly, opportunity. Clearly that's a problem. Right. Um, yeah, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons <laughs> like Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. <laughs> How about John the Baptist? Like, yeah. Well, Right, absolutely. That, I mean, his or parents Isaac. were a little older. Right, exactly. I mean, they, they were a not done older. in their 80s <laughs> and 90s. So I'm just saying that for Christians, there are opportunities here to have really um, winsome conversations about this and the value of children and how precious they are. And yes, and yes, the responsibility that people have, both men and women, in uh, parenting children. They are a sacred trust. Like, let's get our Let's get our theology right on this, and then let's get our social witness right on it as well. Um, All right, Peter. Henrietta Lacks. Tell people who she was and what the conversation is going on right now about her. Yeah, quite the story. Henrietta Lacks is an African-American woman who in the 1950s had passed away. And before she did, they had, without her permission, harvested a bit of her cervical cells because she was dying of cervical cancer and in harvesting those cells and the tissue related to that 
then they continued to be able to do research by reproducing those cells sort of infinitely in the lab from there. Once you harvest cells, you can keep just reproducing them. You, you can't necessarily train them. I know there's a lot of technology out there trying to train those cells to become livers and hearts and kidneys with various degrees of success. But, but where the research really is, is people will take cells and then you can just keep reproducing them for the purpose of doing further experimentation upon these cells in order to find therapeutic agents for some of the most horrific diseases that we've had. And so in the case of Henrietta Lacks, her cells were taken from her without her permission, used in the lab, and then as therapeutic uh, agents against polio or uh, other diseases of that time, including now all the way up to COVID, they will, scientists will test their therapeutic approach on those cells to find out the reaction so that they can tweak the, the, the right intervention at that time. And there's a lot of ethical issues with this, Carmen. We're literally talking about this in my ethics class over this last week about the harvesting of embryos that are otherwise scheduled to be discarded and that people will take these then embryonic stem cells because they're incredibly effective and dynamic in the lab in terms of testing the agents. But there's a whole host of ethical issues about that. In the case of Henrietta Lacks, because it, these cells were taken without her permission, the question is, should there be some kind of compensation for her and for her family and her uh, the generations to come? It's, it's, it's akin to what happened in Nazi Germany in some ways, where the reason why we have the ability to transplant hearts as effectively as we do right now is because of the horrors of the experimentation upon Jewish people in Nazi Germany, where they learned the technology of heart transplantation through that process. And so if we're outraged, as we should be, by Henrietta Lacks and, and her lack of volition, her lack of decision-making related to it, we should be equally outraged by what happened to the Jewish people, from whom then descended our ability to do heart transplantation. And it's a pretty big ethical question right now on a lot of different levels. And again, we're covering these very things in my class right now. Yeah, it is a big question um, in the culture right now because we're, you know, having conversations about how particular vaccines are developed and um, yes, uh, and how those uh, originated. Um, so, yeah, this is a huge conversation. I think it's really important. I think that the other conversation it leads us into or back into is when we uh, had yesterday with Bill English about reparations. And because part of what's going on here is that this is an African-American family and they um, they do believe they have material interest, like financial interest in um, how all of the commercial benefits that have come, right? The actual right. like monetary benefits that have come, which I think leads us into a conversation about sort of the monetary value of our parts. Mm. Like, you know, right. And scientific research and like all, all those people who have said, hey, um, when I die, please, you know, please donate my body to medical research. That is this is a question that's going to come forward, I think, out of this. Maybe we don't donate my body to uh, to medical research. Maybe we sell it to them. Right. Well, I mean, it, like, ooh, ooh, like that just that just icks me out. That's gross. It does. Carmen. And, and I think we maybe don't understand as fully what that marketplace is for body parts uh, for research right now. I had the opportunity to talk to a CEO of a bio biopharmaceutical company out of Australia 
who was actually purchasing embryonic stem cells that were otherwise scheduled to be discarded, and he was using that then for his research to develop uh, novel cancer therapies that would attack the origin cells of cancer versus just the secondary cells. The origin cells are the ones that tend to go into hiding uh, at the first time you use chemotherapy or some of these first-line approaches, and then they come back after mutating, which is why a second version of the same cancer can be so difficult. And, and he was saying that there, it's, it's open. I mean, th- this was not a black market. This was an actual financial market that was incredibly lucrative where he could go purchase the embryos that were going to be discarded through because of in vitro fertilization. Maybe they found a genetic abnormality or maybe the parents just didn't want these embryos anymore. And in that purchasing, he was developing these approaches. I, I think we don't understand how much is going on with abortion in our country related to the finances of it. I, I know mm-hmm. that the, the, the propaganda, right, is my body, my choice. But actually what's underneath the surface of it is we're talking millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of what's going on in the marketplace. If we suddenly made abortion illegal, what would happen financially for a lot of people? And that's why they're screaming so loudly. This is not a moral outrage kind of, it it, it is for some, I, I think a moral outrage, but I think for the vast majority, it's a financial thing that's happening. Yeah. All right. You and I have to take a very, very brief break. Um, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Peter Kapsner in just a moment. We'll be right back. All right, Peter, yesterday, um, Paul Perot sent us an article, the link to which I cannot find right in front of me right now. But it is about um, the rise in the marketplace of virtual clothing. And so uh, do you have an online persona? And if so, does your online persona have a virtual wardrobe? And if so, how much have you spent on virtual clothing? It is amazing, isn't it? With the rise of all of these Zoom meetings and, and different ways to interface with one another technologically, that now a new marketplace has emerged where you can go ahead and clothe yourselves virtually. It's it, You could be wearing your pajamas or your robe in the middle of a very uh, high-end meeting, and at the same time, you would appear on Zoom to be wearing some fashion forward kinds of clothes. And, and I guess being somebody who's a bit fashion challenged myself, I, I, I can sympathize. If I could have a virtual assistant fashion designer, I think I might, I oh think I might do it. But okay. it is interesting, so, isn't it? I have a shopping website that you can look at for all of this, apparently. <laughs> Dress X. Dress X has everything that you could ever possibly need. In, um, I mean, they even have tech couture um, and there's something called a replicant look in tech couture. Um, so when you want to have an arboreous uh, nature, it's it's a thousand and fifty dollars. That's not this, true. A thousand and fifty dollars to have fake clothing. Yeah. Well, you can get a trend, tendril skirt tech couture. For three hundred and fifty dollars. Well, but I'm probably I'm not going to wear the skirt. People are spending so, real yeah. money on fake clothes. It's unbelievable, isn't? It? I mean, kidding aside, the the virtual it's, persona. Th- this is what happened. Who with are the, these people? Right. But this is the research coming out of Facebook that was so troubling this week about finding out mm-hmm. on Instagram how how young girls in particular are being targeted. And I talked to my daughter about this, and she said, Dad, this is a real thing. If I go onto Instagram, right. it's not like I feel awesome after 30 minutes on Instagram. You feel terrible about yourself, and yet you somehow feel compelled 
to stay on it to read even more negative comments about yourself. So, it, it, you know, the, the virtual clothing thing, it, it is funny on one level, but I think it's troubling because we continue to, to perpetrate this idea that we can't be ourselves with one another on some different levels because of fear of how people are going to react to us. And so I don't know about you, but when I live a, when I live a fake life for a day and, and I have done that drill in my life at different times, I'm so tired by the end of the day of, of playing the game of falsity to try to just keep up with what's going on in the world around us. And I think Christians have a very different invitation in the midst of this. All right. Let me just say this. If you are out there and you're considering spending $1,000 on virtual clothing, um, just go ahead and give us $900 for a day, <laughs> a half day. You can sponsor a half day of real programming where we really clothe people in Christ Um which really matters. Like that's it what we're really, really doing. Matter, so if you want to, you know, you got, you got a thousand bucks to just burn. Um, yeah, we, we have a way to help you um, invest that in the kingdom future. Uh, you know, where people will be clothed in Christ forever and ever in reality, not in some fake virtual clothing that they're going to wear online to, to a meeting. I don't even, I, it's just actually, apparently a lot of gamers are doing this so they can, have different outfits when they do this interactive online gaming thing. Yeah. Like that's part of this as well. Like you want your character, which that's not even what it's called. What is your fake it's online your, personality Yeah, it's your avatar. Called? It's your avatar yes, that you're presenting your to avatar. people. Indeed. And, and it's, yeah. we're talking, I think there's a 19-year-old in Great Britain right now that is making tens of millions of dollars annually as a gamer. So uh, a $1,050 couture suit of some kind, that's peanuts. That's, that's play money at that point with that. With that. My, my daughter, again, she's involved in, in some of these different kinds of communities, and she clues me in as to what's happening. And it's, I underestimate what's going on in the next generation and where they find their sense of financial capacity and future. So many people want to get into social media on some level because it is that lucrative. And you can sit at home, and if you do it well, you can make tens of thousands, if not millions of dollars as a social influencer. It's, it's a fascinating and troubling marketplace, that's for sure. Okay, so which child uh, is this in terms of birth order? Yeah, she's second. So this is Anna. She's oh, living in so Scotland she'd still right make, now. Well, right. She'd, still be, she'd make it under the, under the cut that we were talking about earlier. She totally would. Yeah, absolutely. So we can yeah. we can we can talk about Anna because you probably had her before you were forty, and I did. she's no, and she's number two in the birth order. That is my follow up to a question from a listener about Uh-oh. why people would have lots of kids. And so my answer to that question, my first answer, and I'll let you answer it as well. I mean, I don't have any biological children because I didn't get married until after I was forty, and I married into a family that already had six, and that seemed like plenty. Right. So, um, plus my husband was of an age, as we would say. So. Um, uh, God gives them. I mean, the number one answer to the question of why have children is God gives them. And and it's part of God's great blessing and, and God's plan, right? I mean, it's a part of it the is. mandate given in creation. It, it is for sure. And and as the answer why, I'm not sure on the macro why. Certainly we are called to bring forth more imagers and, and we're called to shepherd them and parent them. And they're they're meant to shine God's ever unfolding kingdom of light into this world. I mean, that's that's the purpose and function of having kids. It's, it's a generational play on behalf of God's kingdom. I know for us, we didn't sit back and say, hey, we're going to rattle off five kids. And, and that's the goal here. We we literally thought we were in a position five years into our marriage that we couldn't have children, that there was something uh, wrong with me uh, congenitally in order to be able to have kids. And then all of a sudden, we would just look at each other and start having kids. And it was it was just it, we five came in. And I would say this, we didn't plan for a big family, 
but we know a lot of other big families and so many big families say, I am so glad for the number of siblings that I have and, and feeling like I was a part of something a bit bigger just simply because I had to be that we, we couldn't just revolve the story around my life or my siblings life. There was five of us. We always had to work as a pack and as a community. And there, and there's some difficulty in that. Don't get me wrong, but there was some real wonder about that. And I know Hallie's and my greatest hope is that they will be future imagers shining God's uh, light of his ever unfolding kingdom in this world long after we're gone. And that's really the purpose of it. Um, all right. I, and, you know, all joking aside, like literally, since that's the way that this parody legislation in Pennsylvania um, started out, all joking aside, it is worth giving some consideration it today It is to um, our own families of origin, why we're interested in our ancestry, um, what having children means not only to us as individuals, but to the kingdom of God going forward. What does it mean for Christians to bring forth more imagers who we then raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord that one day they might make their own confession of faith to love God and to serve him so that future generations might know Christ as well. Like I can think of a lot of reasons. Yes. Um, and, and all of that, and, and this conversation, uh, one of our listeners has reminded me this, this having this conversation is, is a sign of our privilege, not just for you for and me, sure. Peter, but for us for as sure a culture, is. because in most places in the world, people have lots of kids because most of their kids do not survive to adulthood. That's exactly right. And, and they cannot live and survive um, in a, in, in a culture where they're literally um, trying to provide for themselves hand to mouth, they cannot survive without having a lot of kids. And so um, this is it's a privilege to even have this conversation um, in, in the culture today. So let's it have is. it in a way that honors Jesus. As always, Peter, what a delight. And um, I love the nature of our conversations because they are so largely unplanned. <laughs> don't, don't give it away, Carmen. I, I spent three hours studying over this last night. <laughs> it's a lifetime of getting ready for the it conversation we it have every indeed. single week. All right. Thanks, brother. Yep. Talk to you soon. All right. That's Dr. Peter Kapsner. We'll be right back. All right, that sounds cool. Legacy Coalition. Uh, That sounds really cool. I'm going to check that out. All right, Billy Wilson is up next. He is the president of Oral Roberts University. He is also the author of Generation Z, Born for the Storm. We're going to talk about the next generation and why we should have great hope for the future. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Locato. When all seems lost, it's not. When evil seems to own the day, God still has the final say. He has a Joseph for every famine. He has a David for every Goliath. He always has his person. He had someone in the story of Esther. And in your story, he has you. Relief will come, my friend. Will you be a part of it? The world gets messy, for sure. But God's solutions come through people of courage, people like Mordecai, people like Esther, people like you, people who dared to believe that they, by God's grace, were made to face a moment like this. In God's plan, confusion and crisis give way to conquest, and winters do not last forever, and springtime is only a turn of the calendar away. And for all we know, God's hand is about to turn the page. Well, 
Well, I'm thrilled to have Billy Wilson on with us this morning. He is the president of Oral Roberts University, and he joins us this morning to talk specifically about his latest book, Generation Z, Born for the Storm. Billy, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Good to be with you today. Hope you're doing well. It's great to be with you. I am doing well. I really just want to spend the whole time talking about our mutual friend, Holly Moore, but I will resist that temptation. (laughs) Yeah, she told me to tell you hello this morning, Carmen. (laughs) Uh, We can have a whole conversation about about your board of directors and things like Empower 21 and what you guys are doing um, around the world not just here in the United States, uh, lifting up the next generation, but um, but everywhere and on the forefront, having your pressing forward into technology. I just I'm, I'm really excited about what's going on and what you're doing. So thank you for all of that. Let's dig into uh, Generation Z, Born for the Storm. Remind us who we're talking about when we refer to Gen Z and what makes Gen Z different from, let's say, the generations uh, before them. Yeah, general terms, uh, Carmen, these are people born between 1995 and 2015. Uh, Some sociologists narrow it just a little bit, but I sort of like those general terms, about a 20-year span uh, of people that are now college students for the most part. And um, uh, so uh, born between 1995 and 2015, a very unique group of people on planet Earth and the largest group of individuals on the planet presently, almost 40% of the population of the world fit into what this this category called Generation Z. Yeah, so college students, when we're talking about the the part of Generation Z that are old enough for us to, you know, really engage with as young adults, but we are talking about everybody down to, you know, very very early grade school. So just for folks to have in mind who we have in who we have in view here. If you're listening right now, maybe that's your kids, maybe that's your grandkids, and yes, maybe that's you. I know we've got some college students listening right now across the Twin Cities and in Iowa. So good morning to all of you for checking in. Um, talk with us, uh, Billy, about when you started to see changes taking place in college students and what kinds of changes you you've observed over time. Yeah, we, about five or six years ago, Carmen, we began to notice the shift in our uh, student population at Old Roberts University, and uh, I began to get very interested in sort of what was going on. I noticed uh, more individualistic thinking, a lot more pragmatic uh, people, uh, more concerned about the price of college education, uh, and just a number of different qualities that um, I began to realize were part of this new generation that was coming on. And so I became very intrigued by them, of course. I live, I'm in a living laboratory here at ORU every day of my life with this generation. And I've always um, had a heart for the next generation. And to be honest, I, I've been thrilled by what I'm learning about Generation Z. I think personally, uh, they will be the greatest generation in the history of the world. I know there was a generation way back there, the World War II generation, that some sociologists called the greatest generation. But I really believe that there are qualities in Generation Z that are going to make them great. And so it's an honor and privilege to serve them, serve with them uh, every single day. Well, that's uh, in large measure what you talk about in Generation Z, born for the storm, are these qualities of greatness that you observe um, in Gen Z. So why don't you lay some of those out? What, why do you believe that Gen Z is going to succeed in ways in the future that some generations have, let's say, languished recently? Yeah, you know, Carmen, what I see in this generation and what I contend uh, really in in the book that I've written about them is that the the adversity and storms that they have encountered 
uh, in their in their lives are going to help form them into greatness. I think many times leadership is born out of adversity, and this generation's had a lot of it. Um, again, born since about 1995 all the way through 2015, a generation born into a, a world filled with terrorism. 9-11 happened during uh, their lifetime, many of them. A generation born in an economic downturn uh, in the uh, 2000s. A generation born not knowing when they go to school if they're going to get shot on any given day, not knowing if uh, when they go to the mall or a theater, if someone's going to come in and with a machine gun and just um, level the room. A generation also that has um, seen more even physical storms in the world than any other generation and complete societal upheaval with political turmoil, really unlike any other time in American history and really global history. I think all of those qualities have developed a generation, number one, that are survivors. They have gotten through. Uh, they weren't aborted. They've made it through the terrorist attacks so far. They are uh, people who have learned to survive. They also, of course, are the first um, technologically native uh, generation in history. They were born with technology in their hands. Um, even my grandchildren, uh, when they were early on, they gravitated to phones, tablets, anything that was technology. Uh, they knew more about it many times by the time they were three years old than I knew as an, as an older man. Uh, and so they, they've had technology at their fingertips. They've had this adversity that they have been in, uh, from their family adversity to societal adversity to political adversity, just surrounded by it all the time. Uh, for this generation, there really is no time in their in their lifetimes when it has been complete calm or pe or been peaceful. So they've had adversity and uh, difficulty and really storm all the way through. In the middle of that, they've also had access to this technology and knowledge like no other generation. And I believe all of those things together are helping form them into a generation that will change the world, perhaps more than any generation in human history. For some reason, and I don't even understand it completely, this generation has had what I call a generational download of a desire to make a difference, to have a life filled with purpose and to change the world forever. Now, in many ways, that's issued into the social justice movement and all kinds of other things. But when that is redeemed and uh, that person becomes saved and knows Jesus, it's changed into missional effect and a real desire for their life to, um, to make an impact and make a difference. Those kind of qualities are helping make Generation Z uh, an amazing group of young people. We're talking with Billy Wilson. He's the president of Oral Roberts University. Uh, among his uh, written works is the latest book, Generation Z, Born for the Storm. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Billy Wilson. He's the president of Oral Roberts University. You can find him at oru.edu. Tons of really great information there about all kinds of programs going on, not only on the campus of ORU, but through their global footprint, um, which expands uh, each and every day. So we're talking today with him about his latest book, Generation Z, Born for the Storm. Um, Billy, I, I'm going to invite you to uh, give us an example of a person in this Gen Z generation who gives you reason for the kind of hope you've expressed. 
Yeah, Carmen, again, uh, there are dozens of examples around me every day at ORU. Um, one example I think that is stark and many of uh, our listeners would be aware of was someone that actually was on the edge of Generation Z, a, probably a late millennial, almost Generation Zer, but embodies the passion and desire of Gen Z to change the world. As one of our alumni, uh, his name was John Chow. A couple of years ago, John um, journeyed to uh, a distant island, uh, the North Sentinelese, uh, North Sentinel Island to try to reach the Sentinelese people and lost his life doing so. It's actually illegal to go to the island he went to, but he had this desire to reach the least reached per people group on planet Earth. And he believed that the Sentinelese were that group. Maybe they are. No one speaks their language. They're an isolated group. It's sort of a uh, human Jurassic Park uh, protected by the Indian government, and so no one's allowed there. John landed on their shores to try to communicate to them the love of Jesus. He went back a couple of times and ultimately was killed uh, for trying to reach this people group. But I think what we found in John, this desire, this um, this deep, deep passion to do whatever it takes to make a difference in the world is what we see really embodied in Generation Z. Now, in my book, Generation Z, Born for the Storm, I, I do a, a sort of a, a little thing through scripture and look at people that have Z in their name. So I talk about people like Zephaniah and Zacchaeus and Zipporah and Zariah, and people who had great influence uh, for God in scripture, whose names begin with Z. And in that, uh, I sort of found qualities that are embodied in this generation uh, things like integrity and hope and commitment and influence and a desire for worship, all kinds of things that I found in scripture that I believe show what is happening in this new generation. But every day I meet young people at Oral Roberts University and, and literally around the world who have this deep, deep passion. It, 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 it is beyond description in some ways for their life to make a difference. And, uh, you know, Generation Zers maybe that are listening today, I want to say to you, your life can make a difference. I want to say to you, especially God sees you. He knows who you are. He sees you as an individual. Sometimes we get hung up on the masses, but I think uh, one of the things I, I believe the Holy Spirit is doing in our day is helping Generation Z that they can make a difference, even if it's just for one person. You know, Jesus focused on the one many, many times, the woman at the well, uh, the person, uh, the demoniac of Gadara, who he sailed through a storm just to reach that one person and over and over again. And Jesus would say that the shepherd would leave the 99 and find the one. And so I want to encourage Generation Zers that are listening that you can give your life, you can make a difference, even if it's just for one person and that one person may make a difference for millions. So many times Generation Z's in this big world of 7.5 million people wonder how they can make a difference. And I would say, just start today. Start by making a difference for one person and your life uh, will have an impact. But this, this desire to make, uh, make a difference in the world embodied in people like John Chow, willing to give his life to reach the least reached people group on earth, I see in this generation every day. So I want to share with you a testimony that I received from a listener yesterday. Her name is Zimri, and she is in Generation Z. She's a listener to the program, um, and she just gives this beautiful testimony about the influence of her parents and their concern um, for she and her siblings, um, not only because they immigrated to the United States from, you know, from another country, but because they saw things happening, let's say, in public education that they were not supportive of as Christians. 
And so she says this, they prayed for us. They challenged what we were learning at school around the dinner table. They taught us um, what it meant to be followers of God today. My parents saw the issues that were um, being raised, and they saw their opportunity to prepare us um, for the arguments being made in the world against the Lord. It's just one way that my parents um, influenced me as I grew up. She goes on to, to, to just testify and bear witness. I mean, it's a great honoring of her parents. Talk with us about um, who the people are who are in a best, the best position to influence Generation Z and, and how we should do it. Yeah, that's perfect, Carmen. I think, you know, recent uh, surveys have said that the two top influencers for Generation Z young people are parents and teachers. So I think one of the things that is really important as a mom or dad, if you're listening today, is to know that your influence is profound. Now, it may not seem like it every day, but what you're saying, what you're doing, the example that you're setting is making a big impact on your young person. I see this in our students here at Oral Roberts University. Parents are much more engaged in their students' education these days than they used to be, which I think is great. But their parents have a great sway over them, and uh, what you say will make a great difference. Also, who teaches them, who stands in front of them every day for hours at a time uh, makes a big difference. So I would really invite moms and dads listening today to consider, to contemplate who it is that's teaching your children, who's standing in front of them. Are there people that you trust? There are people who embody integrity. Do they have a Christian lifestyle? And if not, then I would really encourage you to get your student, uh, your Generation Z, or people that are somewhere between six years old and college age, in front of people who are Christian, who have godly values, and who will teach your children the values you want them to espouse. So the example you've given, I think, is perfect and agrees with what we're finding of the influencers of, of young people today. Well, and her name starts with a Z. So I thought, I, thought awesome, I, I can't <laughs> leave her out. So yeah, Zimri, if you're listening right now, I am going to figure out a way to get you a personal copy of Billy Wilson's um, book, Generation Z, Born for the Storm, because you will it will delight your heart to uh, to read about all the character traits of all of the people in the Bible whose names start with the letter Z and to contemplate, you know, in this emerging generation, like, right, they have the world in their hands in a way that... Um, that those of us who are not digital natives do not like we just it's it is different they have the capacity to do things because of their command of technology that some of us uh, in older generations do not have and it is it is exciting it is exciting yeah it's uh it's a thrill to serve them carmen and again i really see as i look at the horizon uh, this generation will impact the world in huge ways i love millennials they're great they traveled in groups. This generation tends to travel more alone. You must affect them each individually. They, they desire a customized experience. And so every one of them wants to feel important, be important. Everyone's a publisher. Everyone wants to be an influencer. But in all of that, in all of that, I see great, great possibilities for them. They're creative. They're smart. They're hardworking. Uh, they do have command of technology. And they have this generational download, this innate passion for their lives to make a, um, a profound difference. And I think it's going to in the days ahead. In many ways, they're going to leap over other generations into leadership. We're already seeing that even in our workforce here at ORU, uh, the recent college graduates that we are selecting and, and hiring 
are really excelling in the workforce. And so they're going to be leaders in the marketplace and leaders around the world, the largest generation on planet Earth. So we need to understand them and reach them for Jesus Christ and move them, empower them into leadership. Amen. Billy Wilson, what a joy. Thank you so much um, for what you do each and every day. Thank you certainly for joining us. The book is Generation Z, Born for the Storm. We'll be right back. All right. I don't know what it says about me that I'm old enough to uh, have a friend who is the chairman of a university board, but that's the day upon which I have now arrived. So uh, I don't know. It's um, right. It's good. It's good to be in the generation of those who um, are watching the emerging generations, pouring into them, investing in them, recognizing that they are very quickly going to leapfrog over us. Um, And that's okay with me. And I think that... um, you know, we probably need to get there where those of us who are in a position to pass mantles along to not just Joseph's, but to Caleb's, like who is your Caleb? Not just who's your Joseph, but who's your Caleb? Who's the Caleb in your life? Who is the generation after the generation that's after your generation um, into whom you could invest today? What does that look like to pour our lives as a legacy into the emerging generation? So think about uh, people who are six to 18 and pour into them today. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.